Now hear the word from John 12, 12 through 26. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took out branches of palm trees and went to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If you are new here, my name is Justin, and I am the lead pastor here at the church. And this past week, now listen, I, I am not very good at reminiscing and thinking back. I, I live pretty much in the moment uh, from day to day. Listen, I've got five kids, and the only way you survive is by living in the moment. Um, but this past week, I had the privilege of going hunting with my son, and we spent 10 hours in a deer blind, okay? Okay. And that gives you plenty of time to think. And as I was sitting there thinking, I was overwhelmed at God's goodness to us and his grace to us as a church that we've been doing this week in and week out for 12 years. And man, God has just poured out his blessings on us in so many ways. It's actually hard to describe and it's hard to, uh, you know, remember them all. This past week, um, I had the privilege of preaching at Sacred City Youth downstairs in our, in our youth, youth room. If you don't know, we've got a youth ministry for junior high and high school students that meet downstairs every Wednesday night. And um, Alex Tate is our youth director. And Alex, um, I was Alex Tate's wrestling coach a long time ago, okay? Alex, it was his birthday on Wednesday night. He's 35 years old, so you can do the math. I met him when he was probably about 14. He looked like he was 35 then, uh, but he was about 14, and uh, man, he didn't know Jesus, and he was he had a he had a rough he had a rough upbringing and a rough life at that time. And, um, but God saved him, and my relationship with him began then. And I've been, been discipling him literally for however many years that is. I'm not going to do the math. And about five or six years ago, Alex came to me and he said, hey man, I think God might be calling me. He had a, a regular job and he said, I believe God might be calling me to start a youth ministry here. And I said, all right, well, let's do it. Let's go. You, you, you go and you do that thing. And he's been doing that faithfully for 
five or six years. Now listen, Alex isn't here today because Alex is with 43 teenagers at, at a youth retreat this weekend. So if you're looking around and you're going, where are all the youth? Well, 43 of them are at youth camp this morning. And so Alex is living on pizza and no sleep right now, so we can pray for him. But he has been serving faithfully now every single week for the past five or six years, and he's just doing a great job, an outstanding job with his team, serving the youth of Sacred City Church, helping them reach their friends with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And before we moved into this building, they would usually have about 30 to 40 kids um, every single week, but they were meeting not in a prime location. When somebody says, well, where does your youth meet? And you say, hey, it's right next to the Juvenile Delinquent Center. That's not the most appetizing prospect for parents, right? Occasionally, they had escapees, and they had to go on lockdown and stuff. It's like, oh, that's probably not the best place to be sending our kids, right? But we obviously, we've got this building now, and since moving into this building, they've essentially doubled down there. Uh, not only that, but they've got their own band and worship team that Natalie Schneckloth, who was singing up here, is helping leads, lead, and those kids are killing it, man. They have their own worship team. I was down there, I was getting it in on Wednesday night with them this last week, worshiping God. It was, so, it was so good to see our kids' passion for Jesus and that whole team. I mean, kids on the drums, kids on the keyboard, kids on the guitars, kids singing, it's awesome. And it was also fun this week to, to actually preach to teenagers again. That was fun. Um, when we felt called by God to start the advanced building campaign a little, little over 18 months ago, it was our mission to specifically raise money so that we could purchase a new building. And that building had a very spe specific goal in mind. We wanted to be able, our families, to worship God under one roof and a, and a place that would also act as a strategic base for reaching our community and the next generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to publicly, again, thank everyone who has given to our advanced capital campaign and especially those who are continuing to give um, God has obviously given us a great building, and this building is enabling us to reach more people than we ever have before, and we are already seeing great fruit in the lives of our teenagers, so thank you, and again, do not grow weary in doing good. God is doing something special in our church, and also this week, while I was preaching to the youth, we had a couple ladies in our church who felt called by God. You know that, that Isla has been fighting uh, cancer, and She's been fighting well, and, she, and God has been giving her, the, her grace upon grace to fight this battle with cancer. We had a couple ladies in our church that just about two weeks ago say, hey, we feel called by God to start to do a little benefit, to do a little benefit for her, a little, a little benefit for her, and, and see if we can help them offset some of the costs that go into uh, all of this cancer treatment, all the stuff, the travel back and forth to Chicago, all the stuff that's going on. And while I was downstairs preaching the gospel, you guys were living out the gospel in a pub, right, in a brewery in the Quad Cities. And I talked with Josh this morning, and Josh wanted me to, to share that the family can't say thank you enough for all those who came out and donated and blessed and did everything. That place, I saw pictures, that place looked like Iowa City game day is what it looked like, man. <laughs> shoulder to shoulder, body to body, tons of people there, and and you, God, in two weeks' time, you, they, they raised almost $60,000 that night. And people were like, who are all these people? And Josh was like, well, most of these, this is my church family. And they're like, what? 
What is happening? This last week at our missional community, we had Friendsgiving and we had people that got invited and they came to this. And they're like, you guys do this every week? You guys like eat together? Like you're middle-aged people and you have friends? (laughs) And I'm like, I mean, in one sense, I'm like, I've been doing this, we've been doing this for 12 years. So it's like so normal to us. And even this event, it was amazing, but it's like, yeah, yeah, that's just what, what, Family does. That's what family does. So it's like normal to us, but as I'm sitting in this deer stand, thinking back, going, man, this is just not normal. It's not normal in our world. Many middle-aged people, they don't have any friends, right? Or or they're moving around constantly, and they've got friends that they've had for six months because they work out together or something. They don't have these deep friendship that the gospel creates, and it's just such a blessing to to be a part of this church and to see what God is doing here. So Man, I'm just thrilled to get to be your pastor, to get to see God do this kind of work in, in our church and in, our, and in the lives of God's people, and it's just a huge joy for me this morning. And what we're gonna see in our text is we get, we're gonna see why. Like, why do Christians live this way? Why, 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 do, why does this naturally come about? Why do we naturally serve others as a way of life? Why do we naturally lay our own desires and our own life wishes and plans down to see God's kingdom come to this earth? Why do we do this? We're gonna see it in our passage this morning. So let me pray for us, and uh, let's get started this morning. Father God, man, we, we've already confessed that we are sinful this morning, and so we, do really, we really do deserve nothing from you but your anger. We deserve nothing but your wrath against your sin because we are sinful ourselves. And so everything that we've got above death, hell, and the grave is an absolute gift of grace. And so we are so, we want to be people who are thankful. We want to be people who, who say to our souls and say to ourselves and say to our neighbors that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. God, would you help us be glad in it this morning? Would you help us see Jesus in a way that maybe we've never seen him before? And would that uh, do something in our souls, that you would make us people that live for the kingdom of God in this world? Father, I want to pray. I'm going to continue to pray for Isla, and I just want to ask that you would continue to heal her. I want to pray for Judy Knorr. I want to pray for our, our, our brother Dale, who ha- had a mild heart attack this week. I want to pray for my own mother who's fighting sickness. All the people in our church who are fighting sickness and fighting disease, and, and they're, they're fighting really just the, the, the results of the curse, we just ask that you would heal them, Father. We, w- we want to bring them before your throne of grace right now, and we ask that you would heal their bodies. We know that you are a God that does that. You are a God that heals. You are, the God, you are a God that, that made us in our mother's womb, and you can heal us. And so um, we ask you to do that. Father God, we also ask that you would focus our attention on you. I uh, am just a man, and so I have uh, all the the struggles of the flesh that any man does, and so I ask that you would focus my attention on you, that you would think through my mind and you would speak through my vocal cords, that your sheep would hear your voice this morning. God, anybody that's been deceived by the lies of Satan, by the lies of the world, by the lies of their flesh this morning, and they're sitting in darkness, I pray that they would see a great light, and that light, of course, is Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Would you do this in us and through this? Uh, Would you honor your word by producing the fruit that you promised to do it by your Holy Spirit? Would you do this for our good and for our joy and for your glory this morning? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, if you are just joining us, we are working our way through the Gospel of John. We go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. And so far in John, we've seen Jesus do all kinds of miracles that were meant to confirm his identity as the Son of God and as the Messiah, God's chosen Redeemer of his people. 
But one of the things that has been unique is that every time Jesus has done something miraculous and the people have rushed to him and they wanted to crown him king and make him their ruler, Jesus has said over and over again, he's like, not yet. It's been kind of weird, right? Jesus does a miracle and he's like, yeah, not yet, not yet, not yet. First, during the wedding feast when Jesus turned the water into wine and his mother said, Jesus, now is the time to reveal your glory That means to unveil his true identity. Like, let everybody know you're not just the carpenter's son. You're not just Jesus of Nazareth. You're also the son of God. I I could just see Mary as a good mom going, Jesus, do it. Do it now. Like, do the trick. You know, do the thing that we we know that everybody's going to finally see that you're the son of God. And Jesus said to her in chapter 2, verse 4, my hour has not yet come. Later, at the Feast of Tabernacles, his brothers urged him to glorify himself. Remember, his brothers didn't believe in him? Like, all right, if you're really the son of God, bro, prove it by some miracles. And Jesus said there in chapter 7, verse 5, my time has not yet come. And then when the Jewish authorities tried to arrest him, he said they couldn't arrest him yet because, quote, his hour had not yet come in chapter 8, verse 20. Well, today... Everything changes. We're kind of, we're done seeing the ministry of Jesus and now we're stepping into the final week of Jesus' life. Jesus declares in verse 23 of our text today, quote, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So he said, not yet, not yet, not yet. And now today he says, now it's time. But what we're going to see today is that the glory of Jesus, his unveiling is going to happen in a way that no one could have imagined. His own disciples didn't even understand what was going on. And it was only in hindsight, after Jesus' death and resurrection, that they came to see what Jesus was doing. The light bulb didn't turn on for the disciples until Jesus rose from the dead. Now, this is kind of surprising because these people should have known their Old Testament. And what happens today was foretold in the Old Testament prophets, listen, about 600 years before Jesus walked this earth. What he does and this, what we're seeing today, it's, it's famously called his triumphal entry, which is kind of an oxymoron as you'll come to see. What he does in this triumphal entry into Jerusalem was written about in the prophets Isaiah, Daniel, Zechariah, and the Psalms, Psalms 118 that we already, Psalm 118 that we already read this morning. We'll look at it in a little bit of detail. But the people, here it is, the people could not see it. They couldn't see Jesus for who he was and what he came to do because they were far too concerned and consumed with their own desires, their own ideas of what the Messiah would look like, their own hopes for what the Messiah would do for them when he came. And it's really easy for us to do the same thing. We all have things that we want Jesus to do right now for us to improve our lives. If I asked you right now, what would you want Jesus to do for you? You'd probably have a list of five or ten things right now that you want him to do to kind of improve your life. And we don't want 
these good things that Jesus, that we do, hey, these are all good things, but sometimes these good things obscure the main thing, the most important thing, the vital thing. And we don't want our desires for good but lesser things cause us to miss the main thing. Jesus didn't come just to feed the poor or heal the sick or raise the dead like he did last week with Lazarus. Jesus came for the sole purpose to save us from our sins and give us eternal life with him through his life, death, and resurrection. Now let's get to our text this morning. If you've got your Bibles, please open up John chapter 12, verse 12. We're going to go verse by verse. Verse 12. The next day, that's John's basically famous term of just saying, in a little bit of time later. So a little bit of time after. Remember, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Mary and Martha threw a big party for Jesus, right, to celebrate what he had done for them in raising Lazarus. The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So what's going on right here? is Jesus has just had that party and now he's headed to Jerusalem to celebrate the last Passover he would celebrate with his disciples, the last Passover he would celebrate on this earth. It's interesting, the first century Jewish historian Josephus recorded that one census taken at Passover counted 2.7 million people in the small city. So people from all around the region, if they were Jews, they would come to the Passover, they would come to have this feast and celebrate this famous event where God delivered them out of Egyptian slavery, that God saved them from their slavery. Josephus said that 256,500 lambs were brought for slaughter during the Passover. So the city would have been hustling and bustling, full of people. It would have been like New York City during Christmas time, except with a whole lot more blood flowing out of the temple. And now, word has gotten out that Jesus is coming to town. Listen, this is interesting. Jesus has chosen to come to Jerusalem, even though the religious leaders were set on arresting him and putting him to death for claiming to be the Son of God. The prophet Isaiah foretold that the Messiah, quote, would set his face like a flint. Set his face like a flint. Meaning that he would be fiercely determined to do what God wants, even in the face of great opposition and great difficulty. The Gospel of Luke says in chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, I can't think of a more masculine and manly thing for Jesus to do. Jesus, fully aware that he's going to Jerusalem, where all of his enemies, it's the headquarters of all of his enemies, they want to arrest him, they want to torture him, they want to crucify him and kill him, and Jesus says, here's what we're doing. We're going right to the hotbed of this persecution. We're going right into it. He sets his face like a flint, and he goes headlong into this suffering. Remember, Jesus has already said that no one can take his life from him. That Jesus is in complete control and is doing this completely of his own volition 
Why? To fulfill the Father's plan. Jesus isn't going, you know what sounds like a great day? Let's go. I'm going to get killed today. Sounds great. No, he says, this is the Father's plan. This is what was written into God's story. This is my part to play. And so I'm going to do what God has called me to do. As Jesus comes into town, the crowds begin to do something rather astonishing. Look at verse 13. So they, the crowds, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Well, first off, what's up with these palm branches? Now, we've already talked about, we've already talked in weeks past about the Maccabean revolt that happened a couple hundred years earlier than this. Well, for the past 200 years, at the time of Jesus, the palm branch was a symbol of a victorious conqueror who would come into town and rescue the nation of Israel from her enemies. When the Maccabees drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem and cleansed the temple, they welcomed the Maccabeans back into town by waving palm branches. During the wars of Jewish rebellion, a generation after Jesus, coins were made with the image of palm branches on them. So what is going on with these palm branches? Well, the palm branches were much like our symbols of the eagle, right? They symbolized national freedom for Israel. So here's, the, here's what's the expectation that's going on. These people see, Je they've already seen all the stuff that Jesus has done. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. And now he's coming back into Jerusalem. He could be coming back into the temple. So what do they think he's doing? They think Jesus is coming to free them from Roman oppression. Just as Moses came and he freed the people from Egyptian slavery, maybe Jesus is the new Maccabean king who's coming back and he's going to free us from the grips of Roman oppression. So when they lay down palm branches and they cry out, Hosanna, and you didn't think you knew any Hebrew, but you do. Hosanna is a Hebrew word. It's been transliterated back in, into English and it literally means Lord save us or save us now. That's what it means. So when they're saying Hosanna, they're saying save us now. Now what are they saying save us from? They're saying save us from Rome. Save us, save us from these wicked pagans who are ruling us. Save us from these wicked rulers who won't let us practice our Jewish religion the way that we want to practice him. They're wanting political freedom. That's what they're wanting. That comes from Psalm 118. We've, we read it this morning. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm that was sang every year at Passover. It's got all kind of power in that psalm. Verses 25 through 26 says this. Save us, we pray. That's Hosanna. The Hebrew word there is Hosanna. Save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So these people are quoting this psalm written hundreds of years before Christ was born. As Jesus comes to town, they start laying down these palm branches and they start, they start quoting Psalm 118 thinking he is the king who's coming. This is like the Britons say, God save our king. And Americans used to say, hail to the chief. Well, the Israelites said, Hosanna. Here's the idea. These people thought Jesus was coming to make their nation great again. 
Think about it. When our president comes to town, he comes in a great motorcade full of pomp and circumstance. Most of the time, if he comes to town, we're probably pretty annoyed because all the roads are blocked off and there's all kind of secret service everywhere and we can't get where we want to go on time, right? But it's interesting. When Jesus comes to town, we would expect him, and I think they probably expected him to come like the Maccabees on a great war horse with a sword at his side, ready to overthrow and topple the Roman government. But that's not how Jesus enters. Look at verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey, a young donkey, and sat on it, just as it is written. Verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. Let me be clear. Jesus is their king. He is the king of all kings. He is the son of God and the Messiah. But he's not the king they're looking for. He comes in riding on a donkey. Why? Well, one, because the prophet Zechariah, which is what they're quoting from here in verse 15, had foretold hundreds of years beforehand that that's what the king would do. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, Jesus is coming to town, but he's not coming like they want him to come because he's not the king they're looking for. He is a king who is humble. He is a king who is righteous and having salvation and humble. And so he comes mounted on a donkey. Why? Because Jesus isn't just the king who's going to conquer all of his enemies through the power of the gospel. He's also the prince of peace. He's righteous. He's never done anything wrong. He's never sinned. We said that in our confessions this morning several times. He has salvation for them in his hand, but he's also humble. And so he isn't riding into town like the Maccabees to violently overthrow the government. The next verse in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9 verse 10 says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak, look, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, he's not coming just to heal the nation of Israel. He's not coming just to be their conquering king. He wants his peace to spread all over the earth. Jesus isn't coming just to save Israel through warfare. He's coming to save the world and speak peace to the nations. His rule is to be over all the earth. Isaiah 42.1 said of him, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. That's how the Father speaks to the Son. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. In other words, Jesus has a global understanding of his ministry. He has a global outworking of his ministry. He has a global plan, not just a nationalistic plan for this little, tiny, feeble nation called Israel. 
He doesn't come on a war horse to kill his enemies and free the nation of Israel from Rome. He comes on a donkey to be killed by his enemies, to save all of his people from around the world from their sins and give them eternal life with him. Verse 16. I love these little statements that John put in here. These are not statements I would put in here. If I'm writing a story of Jesus' life, I'm not going to include how big of a moron that I was at the time. But John, because he's writing a faithful testimony, he does. This is what he says. Verse 15. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, when he was resurrected from the dead, when he was lifted up and went back into heaven, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So guys, when Jesus was living this out in real life, his disciples were probably like, what does he want a donkey for? Right? President comes to town, right? President comes to town. He's like, hey, give me a 90 Ford Ford Tempo. Everybody's like, where's the president? Right? You, you, they're like, this isn't how the king comes to town. I don't understand what he's doing, but he wants a donkey. I guess get him a donkey, right? But then after his resurrection, the light bulb comes on and they see what's going on here. Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Now, this is important because we need to understand this crowd. Remember, anytime John talks about a crowd, he, he very rarely talks about the crowd in a positive light. So we look at this crowd and this crowd is going, Hosanna, he's the king of the Jews. Lord, save us. Oh, wow, this crowd must have great faith. But remember, the crowd usually has eye faith. We're told right here that it was eye faith. Why were they there? Because they had saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. So they're there just because Jesus does cool tricks to them. And this same crowd, we need to remember, that began this week singing Hosanna, 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 six days later, this same crowd will be saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. How fickle the faith of the mob or mostly peaceful protests as we call them around here. (laughs) Jesus knows the fickle faith of crowds. He knows that he knows that and he isn't he knows that he isn't going to be crowned with a crown of gold full of diadems and jewels he's going to be crowned with a crown of thorns what does that tell us Jesus is glory he's about to glorify himself the father's about to glorify him and Jesus's glory is going to be most clearly seen not by his exaltation. Isn't it interesting we're going to get to his exaltation and he he floats up into heaven but he's only seen by a few of his disciples. Now you would think that that would be the moment that you want all the crowds to see. Like Jesus literally floating up into heaven, right? You really believe that? Yes, I really believe that. But That's not the purpose. That's not where we we most see the glory of Jesus. We most see the magnificent glory of Jesus in his crucifixion and his resurrection. Verse 23. No, verse, I'm sorry, verse, where am I at? Oh, 18. 
The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gathering, gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. So the Pharisees, we get this little internal dialogue from the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees are trying to kill him, right? They're trying to, they're trying to capture him. They're trying to arrest him. And their plans have failed up until this moment. And now the Pharisees are really frustrated because he's coming into town. They're laying their palm branches. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the Pharisees are at their wits end. And they're like, the whole world is following this guy. What do we got to do to stop him? Look at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now this is an interesting development here. Because if a Greek-speaking person became a follower of, became a, a Jew or a Jew, then they would come to, to also practice the Passover, right? And so now we're, we're seeing not just ethnic Israel, not just ethnic Jews, but other outsiders. Again, Jesus didn't come just to save the Jews. Jesus came to save every people group on the face of this planet. And now we've got these Greeks, the Greek-speaking people who are hearing about Jesus, and they're, they're coming to see who Jesus is. I mean, they have the, the, an amazing statement here. Look at verse 21. So these came to Philip, one of the disciples, who was from Beth, Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They want to see Jesus. These non-ethnic Jews want to see Jesus. These four verses show us that what the Pharisees said was indeed coming to true. Was, was coming true. All the world was going after Jesus. In other words, Jesus was popular. He was drawing in more than just Jews. People wanted to see him and see what he was all about. But before we think that this was the beginning of some kind of revival, again, we need to remember that these same people, these same crowds who were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, we want to see Jesus, we want to see Jesus, We'll see, we'll see Jesus be judged and stand before Pilate and give, given the opportunity to free, Bar, uh, to free a, a prisoner, a murderer, right? Barsabbas. Be, do you want us to free Barsabbas or do you want to free this Jesus who says he's the king of the Jews? And they say, give us Barabbas, right? Give us Barabbas. Crucify him, crucify him. Verse 23, Jesus knows all of this. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Golly. My hour is here. My time is here. Can you imagine the disciples? Now's my time to be glorified. The disciples are like, what's about to happen? Jesus is about to be glorified. What's that going to look like? It's not going to look like what they think it's going to look like. Verse 24. Truly, no, let me talk about 23. This, what does this mean? His hour has come. Here we see Jesus in the same verse, 23. Look, it says, the hour has come for the Son of Man and if you have an ESV Bible, the words son and man are probably capitalized. The reason they're capitalized is because this is Jesus' favorite moniker of himself, and it relates to an, another Old Testament prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13. 
And this is what Daniel says in those verses. There came one like a son of man. And he came, look, to the ancient of days and was presented before him. The ancient of days is God the Father. And to him, to Jesus, or the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. What Jesus does when he says, I am the Son of Man, and now it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified, he's tagging off of this prophecy from Daniel, the one who, the, who would go before the ancient of days. Jesus says, I am that guy. I am the man. I am the son of man, the one who came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and the Father willingly, graciously gave me dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve me, but they will serve me not because I bring a sword and make them bow down like most earthly kings did. Rather, because I will give up my life for them as a ransom to save them from their ultimate enemy, sin, death, and the devil. I will give my life for theirs. Theologically, this is called substitutionary atonement. But according to the scriptures, sin must be paid for. And we are all sinners, and so we stand guilty before a holy God. And when Jesus Christ died, he suffered there on the cross as our substitute in the place of and on behalf of sinners like us. That means Christ's death makes it possible for men and women to be declared righteous before God based solely upon their faith in him. This is all a gift of God, a gift of grace. Jesus says, I'm the guy. But I'm going to make the nations bow, not through a sword at my side, but through the sword of the Spirit, through the Word of God, through the declared gospel, that the gospel is going to go out to all nations and people will willingly bow their knees because the Spirit of God is at work in the preaching of God, converting sinners of every nationality. That's how Jesus makes us bow. That's not how the God of Islam wants to make us bow. See, they can convert at the edge of a sword. That's not the way Christianity converts. Christianity converts through the sword of the Spirit, the preaching of the Word of God accompanied by the Spirit of God. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is here, what we would call, he's referring to the term that we would call germination, right? This process of germination. A seed is just a seed, right? That's it. It remains alone. If you keep that seed in your pocket or you keep that seed in your hand, that seed remains alone. But if you put that seed into the ground, that seed, once it goes into the ground, it gets buried it begins to die. It begins to decay. By all account, it does die. But that death, what does that death do? That death produces new life. And not just new life like one little thing. It produces a multiplication of life. 
I Googled it quick before I came out here. One wheat seed goes into the ground, and every year it produces, on average, 110 more seeds. One dead seed, on average, every time it germinates, produces 110 more seeds. Think about the new life as that continues to happen year after year after year. This is the upside-down nature of Jesus. This doesn't fit with our normal way of living life. Jesus says, if you want me to take over the world, I have to die. And by dying, I'm going to go into the ground and I'm going to produce a harvest for God. And that harvest is going to go on forever and ever and ever. Jesus doesn't come like most earthly kings. He's not here to seek his own glory. He's here to obey the Father. But in obeying the Father and dying on the cross, Jesus will be glorified. It is only by dying that Jesus becomes our Savior. He had to take upon himself our sin so that he could take the punishment for them that we deserve. If Jesus had never died, listen, there would be no Christianity. You can't take, where we're at, we're in John 12. You can't take the first 11 chapters of John and go and try to live them. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come just so we would mimic him or live like him or see him as a moral good teacher that we would try to follow him. Christianity's power lies in Jesus' death and resurrection. If there was no death and resurrection, there would be no Christianity. If there was no death and resurrection, there would be no church. What we do in our community, the way we live life on life, the way we love one another and serve one another, none of this, would, none of this happens because we woke up trying to be a good person this morning. No, it's happened because Christ died for us and we died with him and Christ rose for us and we rose with him and the spirit was sent to us and the spirit lives in us and now there's a new power inside of us that we don't live for ourselves anymore. And this is happening globally around the world and the devil can't stop it. Look at Jesus, that great seed that went into the ground, planted in the earth, put in a tomb, rolled the stone in front of him, and the devil shook his fist and said, what now? What are you gonna do now? I killed your son. I killed the son of God. And God said, watch this. And now there are two billion Christians on this earth. Two billion. More than two billion. I Googled that too, 2.38 million. Man. Jesus didn't seek his own glory. He sought the Father's will. He wasn't trying to live his best life now. That never includes dying a horrible death on a cross, naked and ashamed. And that, his love for us, his love for the Father, led him to the cross, led him into the ground, led him into the tomb. Now listen, unless that moves you, unless that becomes your functional center, the motivating center of your soul, that Jesus went to the cross for you, Jesus died to forgive you of your sins, to make you right with God, to give you eternal life, to adopt you into the family of God, unless that moves you and becomes the most important thing about you, right, that God's put his Holy Spirit in you, 
unless that really moves you, this next verse is going to crush you. Verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Your life is a seed. And whoever loves his life What does that mean? That means you take your one and only seed and you put it in your pocket and you try to protect it and you live for yourself. You live for the seed. That's what you live for. Your whole life is trying to protect the seed. That's what what your life is lived for. What do you say? What do you mean? Shouldn't we love our lives? Well, in one sense, yes, of course you should love your life. Jesus tells us to love your neighbors as you love yourself. So if you don't love yourself, you won't love your neighbors. But there's another love of ourselves, and this is what Jesus is speaking of here, and and the way we love our life, that is bad. And it's called being selfish. It's called being narcissistic. It's It's called being idolatrous. It's living for the seed. And we are a culture that is narcissistic. I tried to go to the gym last week, and people have no shame anymore. No shame. Wear hardly any clothes and get this close to the mirror. I'm like, there's people watching you do this. Have you no shame? (laughs) Women and men. I saw one guy just, I thought, why? Just take his shirt off. and ah, I'm like, I want to film it and show it on a Sunday. You know, like, if you see this guy, this guy needs Jesus, Okay. See, this type of love of our life is loving our life so much that we aren't willing to give it up to our creator, to give it back to our creator and let him do with it what he wills. Here's the idea. If you are living your life with yourself at the center, You are going to eventually lose your life and lose everything you lived for. They famous a lot of people say, when you die, right, you you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. All of the stuff that you live for, unless it's in Christ, it doesn't go with you. So you can live your life day to day for the things that money can buy. Right? And can we just look around in our world and see that that doesn't produce happiness? There's a reason why many, the wealthiest among us, are are committing suicide at higher rates. Money won't make you happy. So if you're living your life with yourself at the center, you're going to lose it all. And of course, you will be eternally separated from God. You will never have eternal life. But look at Jesus. See, Jesus puts the Father at the center of his world. And Jesus lived exactly how the Father told him to live. 
See that? And Jesus takes his seed and says, God, you can do with it whatever you want to do with it. And of course, that led him to a cross and that seed went into the ground and that seed produced a, a, a harvest, a hundred, you know, 30, 60, even 100 fold all around the world. Jesus's life had a global impact. So he says to us, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What is he saying? We've got to hate our life? He's saying this. Jesus said it in other places. We have to take up our cross and follow him. We live with an open hand and ask God to do with our life what he wants to do with it. In other words, we must die with Christ. We must Give up our seed and say, Father, I don't know how to live my life the best way. I give it up to you. I need you. I repent of my sins. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And we are born again, Jesus says. And if we have been born again, if we have been born again, then Jesus becomes the most important person in our life, bar none. If you want to be a good husband, Love Christ more than you love your wife. If you want to be a good wife, love Christ more than you love your husband. If you want to be a good parent, love Christ more than you love your kids. If you want to be a good boss, love Jesus more than you love your business. Our life now, because of what Christ has done for us, revolves around him and around his mission and not our own any longer. He should be the one determining our goals in life, our schedules, how we use our money, how we love our neighbors, how we treat one another. And Jesus says, for those who don't love God more than their life, you know what they will do? People that protect the seed and they live for themselves, they're going to look at us and go, they must hate their life. Sometimes they're going to say, they must hate their life. Why? Because we don't get to do whatever we want whenever we want. Hey, can you go out for brunch on Sunday? Well, after church. Oh, everybody's going to 10. Come on, man. No. My life revolves around God. We go to church on Sunday. Right? Hey, can you go on this vacation with us? We're going to go up there. We're going to do this. Actually, no, I can't go because I've been giving sacrificially to God's work in, in the church and his ministry in the world. And so I don't have that extra money right now. So no, I can't actually go on that vacation. Hey, can you do this on Tuesday night? Wednesday? No, actually, that's where I, I have missional community. That's where we live life as family. I actually can't do that. Bro, you're so involved with your church. Lots of people. Lots of people in our world today, man, are, are giving their commentary on what is wrong with our society, what is wrong with our country. But it should be obvious. We have removed God from our center and we've replaced him with the individual. Do what makes you feel happy in the moment is a terrible way to live and an impossible standard to build a society on. Jesus says that's not where you find life and life more abundantly. 
People look in and say, man, how do you get family like this? How do you get friends like this? How do you get relationships like this? Why do you, literally, we had people say this week, go, why do you, so many people in this group that the couples seem like they really love each other? I was like shocked. Like, you guys have been married long enough now where the husband should be spending most of his time out in the garage or somewhere else. You know, we need separate hobbies because we need to spend as much time apart as possible. And I was like, what? Because Jesus gives good gifts to us. That's why. Because we don't live for ourselves. We live for Christ. And Jesus says in Matthew 18 that when we, whoever gives up brothers and sisters and mothers and houses for my sake will be given back a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come. And so we have community. We have other families. We have other friends that we have. I have more people to meet with than my schedule allows, right? Like, I get more emails than I can respond to. Why? God multiplies it. We've got a big family. This is all a gift of grace. Living for yourself, man. It's destructive. It's not fulfilling. Jesus gave his life up for us. And now, after we accept that fact into our hearts, that historical fact, Jesus changes us. We follow him. It's no secret. Then we live like he did. Look at our last verse, verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Can I just stop right there? He must follow me. I know in this country especially, there's been big revivals, guys like Billy Graham, and there's big conferences, and there's all these big things, acquire the fire and all this kind of stuff that people go to, and they think they get on fire for God, and they think give, they give their life to Christ, and they think they become a Christian, but I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure, because Jesus says right here, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. You want the benefits of the resurrection? You want the benefits of life with Christ? You have to follow him. You have to follow him. You have to live your life like he says we are to live it. And where I am, there will my, be my servant also. In other words, duh. Like, where I'm at, my servant's gonna be right with me. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means you're following Jesus. It doesn't mean you ask Jesus into some special corner of your heart. Like your heart, your heart is a 60, you know, a, a 60 story uh, apartment complex and Jesus gets one of those rooms. Jesus, come into my heart. Jesus is in that one room. Hey buddy, don't worry about it. You're saved. Everything's good. No, 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 no. Jesus comes in and reorders the whole thing and then our life gets reordered to his desires, his will, his plan for us. In other words, Christ is not your savior unless Christ is your Lord and King. If anyone serves me, now look at this. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Justin, that sounds kind of depressing. A life of self-sacrifice, a life of denying your desires, a life that Jesus controls your finances and Jesus controls your schedule. No, no, it's not depressing at all. It's only depressing if you think you would rule your life better than King Jesus would. 
But King Jesus says, if you do it this way, the Father will honor you. Just like the Father honored the Son. What does the Son get? The Son gets the nations. That's what the Son gets. He gets exalted to the right hand of the Father, and the nations will bow their knees to him one day. All of them. That's what the Son gets. We get glorified as well. Listen, since this, is, this ain't a holiday and we got nothing going on this afternoon, I'm gonna go one more verse just because I want to. We're gonna go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. What, what, how will God honor us? Start in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, you see, the, you see the same language Jesus used here? Sowing something, sowing it into the ground. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Perishable means it will rot, it will decay, it will, di- it will die. Christ is going, something is about to be raised that is imperishable. It will never die. It is sown in dishonor, because that's how we die. We die in dishonor in a sense, Right? It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it will be raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. What's, what's he saying right here? Jesus Christ went into that tomb a natural body. But when he came out of that tomb, he came out a spiritual body. And don't think spiritual means like Casper the ghost type of stuff. He had a real physical body, yet it was spiritually empowered. So he could do crazy stuff with it, right? He could still eat. He still ate with his disciples, but he could like walk through walls. He could just appear certain places, and then he could just float off into heaven and be glorified, right? That's what's going to happen to us. We will get a new body when we're raised to new life when Christ comes back. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Just as the Father honored Jesus and rose him from the dead, and then glorified him at his right hand to rule the nations with a totally new, imperishable body, so will every Christian be honored. When we give up our lives for him, when we give up that seed, he plants it and he produces a harvest, 30, 60, even 100 fold. We too will be raised to new life to be with the Father. Listen, this will be our ultimate vindication for our life lived now for God's purposes and not our own. This is God's plan for us. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, we thank you that Jesus is a king in a way that we would never plan, in a way that we would never design ourselves. but you gave him a crown because he went to the cross. And the crown comes after the cross and so too does our crown 
our resurrection ultimately come through the crosses that we bear on this earth, that we live not for our own, but we live for you. We thank you for the grace given to us in the gospel that comes absolutely free of charge, that you give us the faith to believe in Jesus Christ, and we put our hope and our faith in him. And I pray this morning that people in this room that have never put their faith in Jesus Christ, that they would, and they would be saved from their sins, and they would have the promise of eternal life and the promise of a new body on a new restored heaven and earth, that that inheritance would be theirs. We thank you for this, Lord. On this week of Thanksgiving, we also thank you that we get to celebrate a Thanksgiving meal every single Sunday here. The Lord's Supper, where blood-washed sinners get invited to the table of Jesus, and we get fed by his body, we get fed by his blood, and you minister to us and you give us grace upon grace upon grace. So Father of mercies, thank you for this gift of bread, which we confess provides us with the body of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask you to enable us to eat of it in faith and to be made more fully members of his heavenly body through Christ our Lord. Father of mercies, thank you for this gift of this wine, which we confess provides us with the blood of your son, our Savior. We ask you to enable us to drink of it in faith and to be conformed more and more to the image of his death through Christ our Lord. Jesus, we do this in honor of you. Would we remember your death, remember your resurrection, and remember your glorification. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.